Welcome to the Ignite Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets to ignite the growth of your agency. It's good business practice anyway, and would actually give you more time to grow the business in the future if that's the direction you wanted to go down. When you've got urgency, you're not in control anymore as the seller. The buyer is in control. When you're a discretionary seller, you're in control and the buyer doesn't hold the cards. If you are feeling frustrated with the lack of growth in your agency and you're impatient to reach those ever-moving goalposts, then here's your invitation to find out more about if and how we can help you scale and build the agency of your dreams. All we want you to do is go to fire-wave.co.uk forward slash AJMM and that'll be in the show notes as well. Here are your hosts, Sam and Phil. Hello and welcome back to the Ignite podcast. And today, Phil's feeling a little bit under the weather. So I'll just carry him, but I usually do that anyway. You might not even notice. Today we're talking about inside the mind of an acquirer, an agency acquirer. What do we mean by that, Phil? We mean somebody that would like to potentially buy your estate agency. Now, you might not be interested in selling, and that's fine. We aren't, are we? I think everybody's interested in selling. Well, everybody says they're not until they get an offer. Yeah. And then that maybe turns their head a little bit. Mm. So it might not be now. It might be a year's time. It might be 10 years time. It might be 30 years time. What we're doing is we're building our business as if we were going to sell it, even though we're not. Certainly not in the short term. Why are we doing that? Well, because a couple of reasons. First reason is that you never know what's going to happen to you or to your life or to your family or to your situation that will suddenly put you in a position where you have to sell. Now, not putting things in place and then having to react to all of a sudden sell your business, having not put the steps in and the systems, et cetera, you're going to come out with, well, the likelihood is you won't be able to sell it. But if you do manage to sell it, it's going to be for peanuts. So that's number one. And number two is that Whatever your long game is, whether it's to stay in agency for 30, 40, 50 years, having the systems in place which will allow you, which would be the right thing to do to sell, is good business practice anyway and would actually give you more time to grow the business in the future if that's the direction you wanted to go down. So it's not even necessarily building to sell. It's, it's building to have a secure platform of a company with the right systems and processes in, which so happens to be the systems you need to sell. That's exactly right. Thank you. See you next Put week. Put it very well. <laughs> so if you look at a, a successful business that's doing everything right, whatever right means, it's probably also a business that's right to be acquired. And as Phil said, something could change overnight. So if I suddenly had a, a sick child or, or I became ill, got that horrible letter from the doctor, then my perspective is going to change completely. And as well as worrying about this thing, this health thing that I'd be facing, I don't want to be thinking about how I'm going to exit out the business at that time. Plus, let's say that Phil's not in the picture. If I was just trying to sell this business on my own, if I'm not well and I'm trying to negotiate the sale of my business, I'm probably not going to make very good decisions. And that person that's buying is going to be dealing with a distressed seller, which we're going to talk about. Just the same as if you're selling your house. You know, we go and see people, and I'm sure you do, if you're an agency owner, who have been in their house for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they're now facing a time where they have to move out their house, not that they want to. They've gone from a discretionary sale to a distressed sale. And 
people in distressed sale situations don't make good decisions. No, they're good to buy from. But as you know from selling the houses, and life changes so quickly. I mean, I, I'm only 30 years old. So it seems silly for me to say that. But even with my last five, six years, it's been such a dramatic change. You never know which direction you, you're going to be pulled in or what life's going to, going to take you. And we've got in on the board, next 30 years, question mark. And it's almost, you can have a, a goal in mind of where you want to be, but what's the chances you're actually going to be in that position? Mm. Might not be with the same partner. You probably won't be in the same house. You won't be in the same health necessarily. Things could have changed massively. I had two grandchildren at the beginning of the year. I've now got five and we're only in October. <laughs> I'd be amazed if you had any more. <laughs> you never know. But... I'm hoping I'm hope some more. No, I don't think I'm going to get any more this year, but maybe, you know, over the coming years. So things change fast. My parents died really young, actually. They're both in their very early 30, uh, 30s. Obviously, they weren't. <laughs> they were both in their early 50s. And so that has made me live my life in a slightly different way to Phil, where his parents are both in very good health and in their 60s. And I think knowing now that it's almost like I feel like I'm almost on borrowed time because my mum died at 51. I'm 54 as we record this. So I've got three years on her. I feel like I've got an obligation to make the most of my life now because she didn't have this part of her life. It's a mad way to think, isn't it? No, no, it's, it makes sense. But I think that if I can live my life to its full, which will include work, but it doesn't only include work, then that's something I want to take into the rest of my life. So I feel like I've got chapters ahead of me where I want to do lots of things and I've got a diminishing time ahead of me to do those things. And I don't know when that's going to end, but if it ends in 10 years, I want to make sure I make the most of the next 10 years. And we were talking just before about the idea of a reverse bucket list, which is something that Simon Sinek talks about. And it's not looking at all the things you haven't done, it's looking at all the things you have done. And then those things, if you made a list of all the fantastic things you've done in your life, what is that list comprised of? Is it adventures, which is what mine is? Is it family? Is it work? Is it work, work and more work? Is it material things? Is it you're going to put, I've got abortion, I've got a 35 grand watch, or is it you've, you know, you've abseiled over Niagara Falls? What, what's on that list? And then if you transport yourself to five years time, what have you added to that list that's going to make you happy? And I guess what we're saying is this podcast we think is for everybody, whether you're thinking of selling or you're not thinking of selling or you haven't thought about it. Well, hopefully the, the topics we're going to discuss will give you some kind of new angle to think about. And hopefully you can think about your business and where that's going and, and how you, you set it up in the future. Hmm. And, and what your decisions are on a daily basis in terms of things like systems, processes, how you do things and what your involvement is. So three different types of acquirers for... Should we do the sellers first? I feel like we need to do sellers first, really, because they are sellers listening to it, and then we'll do acquirers afterwards. Okay. There might be acquirers listening, but yeah. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure there are. And a seller could also be an acquirer, of course. So three different kinds of sellers that we have identified, and you may find that you fall into one of these three types of sellers. So the first one is a discretionary seller, and that's a tempt-me seller. It's exactly the same as a house. A homeowner, yeah. isn't it? But it's, it's someone that's, that's, that's looking to sell. They don't need to sell. Yeah. I mean, we've all heard it before. It's on the mind. Don't need to sell. I don't need to sell. I'm not in any hurry. Six million? <laughs> so a discretionary is, yeah, I don't need to sell, but tempt me with a good valuation and I probably will. These are those, those clients you don't like because <laughs> they're 
double the value of our own home. <laughs> yeah, this is you. It's quite often a downsizer. Mm. So it's coming to the end of their journey of selling. Yeah, these are the people that have got three homes in the market and think the business is worth three million. <laughs> and it's also the people who are, respond to our nom letters most readily. Yes, they do. So I would say probably only about half our nom respondents go to market. Yeah. And it's the tempt me ones, isn't it? Oh, I didn't realize it was going to be that much. We had one last year in Hollywood, didn't we? We did. That we valued at three million. And he was, he fell off his chair and went, go on then. Yes, I am ready to sell. Yeah. I am in a hurry all of a sudden. So it's the same kind of thing with a, a business. You might have a very successful little agency. You might have three or four members of staff. You're ticking it over quite nicely. So if somebody came along and said, yes, I'll buy your business. And you were thinking about what you're going to do with the next chapter of your life, then you would probably take it. Yep. The second type is distressed. And this is where the price is usually lower and the speed is is more important than the the final sale price. And again, turn this into something that we all understand. We all have had or may have clients that have their homes on the market that they need to sell quickly for health reasons, for financial reasons, for lifestyle reasons, for family reasons, mm. whatever it may be. There's there's some sort of pain point there that that they need they need to exit quickly. And actually the overriding feeling is urgency, isn't it? Speed, yeah. It's I think when you've got urgency you're not in control anymore as the seller. The buyer is in control. When you're a discretionary seller, you're in control and the buyer doesn't hold the cards. Yeah. And then the third one is an opportunist. And this is really when somebody just, you weren't thinking about selling at all and somebody comes along and goes, right, there's three million pounds. Would you walk out today? This is 90% of people, isn't it? If not more. Well, not the three million pound, but yes, it is. It, yeah, yeah. I not, wasn't not, thinking about selling, but no, I had a note through my door. Because even some of our clients, some of our, the, some of our mastermind clients, we have conversations and they say, I'm not planning on selling. I don't want to sell. I want to be doing it in 30 years. That's all great. I'll give you mm. 20 million for your business. Mm. I'll take it. Yeah. Well, so we've got, we're actually in a mastermind in Birmingham, as some of you know, um, with Nick James and the Expert Empires team. And we're in their top level of mastermind, the seven figure mastermind. And we've just had a brand new, lady join and the week she joined she got an offer for her business she wasn't expecting it um she hadn't courted it but now she has had the offer she's trying to do a sense check and going to other potential uh, buyers uh, acquirers and saying well what would you offer me so she's got a bit of a pageant yeah but what's interesting and we've just sold someone i've just sold a house that we developed is that you can quickly go from opportunist to discretionary, to distressed. <laughs> as, yeah. as the buyer mm-hmm. might change their mind or might change what their offer is, you can quickly move through the process because mm-hmm. you've, you've almost spent the money. Yeah, exactly. And then we had somebody pull out of their sale, didn't they? They got a really good price for the house. Remember the barn conversion from Staveley? And the seller pulled out because his business had completely changed. I think his business oh, yeah. potentially was in trouble because of COVID. And everything changed. And so he had to hang on to his house. So he'd gone from potentially a, a discretionary sale to it was distressed, a distressed wasn't it? stay. <laughs> it was it was distressed sell to a distressed stay. It was. It flipped 180 or 360, yeah. Yeah, it did. So let's have a look at the three different kinds of acquirers. Now we know that as a seller, you're going to be a discretionary, tempt me, a distressed or an opportunist seller. Three different kinds of acquirers. Yes, the first one is strategic. And these are the people that will probably pay more for your business than anybody else. They almost need, well, they do, they need your business probably more than you need them. 
and they're buying it for strategic purposes. So for example, they might have three offices and in order to sell their business for X amount of money, they need two more offices in positions and places that they don't have the, the team or the time to, to do and therefore they need to act quickly. So you're more in, in control of this, that situation. There's also a different kinds of acquirer that isn't necessarily an agency owner. So there could be, let's say there's sales only in the one to add lettings. That would be a, a strategic, wouldn't it? Yes. Or it could be that, like you say, it's geographical. So they're trying to expand quickly and acquire. And I know that Humberts did that mm -hmm. many years ago. And then they turned to Chester and Humberts and they, they just swallowed up lots of little brands. In fact, in a way, that's what Countrywide did way back in the day. They just acquired lots and lots of brands, which is why you see the brands all over the country and quite often they're competing brands. Mm. That was all strategic coverage, wasn't it? Yeah. There could also be a strategic buyer that wasn't an agent. It was actually somebody like, so for example, Zoopla or DPG yeah. or somebody who, I don't know, Mr. Burgess maybe, who wants to buy something, wants to buy an agency because he's trying to achieve something with his own company which might be an affiliated company, it might be like a kind of merger, or it might be something that's going to give him an advantage in the industry he's pursuing. Yeah. Another strategy that we've not discussed is for a new niche or a new to get into a new market. So let's say Purple Bricks, mm -hmm. they all of a sudden want to go totally opposite end and want to buy high end. Yeah. They, they can't, it's very, well, they can't stretch their brand. So they're going to have to buy some sort of agency that's already up there doing only that mm. and that's a strategic decision and they're going to pay probably a lot of money for that so there's, there's also a niche mm. yeah that's a good point or the other way around a high-end savills could buy a low end a low end yeah well easy property yeah for example. example yeah yeah where's that gone i don't know wasn't very easy was it financial so this is a, normally like an investment buyer so they just want the income. They don't really want the involvement. They just want to be able to have hands off. It could even be somebody that's a, a major corporation or even a hedge fund buying in or a venture capitalist or somebody. They're drilling the numbers, aren't they? That's all, that's all they want. They want the numbers. They just want whatever you, it is you have and they just want to be able to pay for a reasonable return for that. And it might be they've got too much money floating around so they've decided to invest in a certain sector and they might go and buy lots of branches but they don't usually make massive changes in things like your brand. They usually just leave you running. So we're going to talk about how uh, when you exit, whether you are actually allowed to exit the business or whether you have to yeah. stay there. But because a strategic buyer, sorry, a financial buyer will usually want you to stay there. And it's purely valued on a multiplier. Yeah. And we're going to go into EBITDA, but it's, it's probably valued on, on that. And they're probably talking to all your competitors at the same time mm -hmm. to find yeah. out the best deal. Yeah, and it's just literally what's, what it looks like on paper. Yeah. So they might not visit you uh, much that, or even at all. They might just look at it on paper. And it's the same as, let's say, uh, a landlord purchaser who has got a portfolio of 50 and he wants to add another 20. Is he going to go and view another 20 properties? Probably not. Mm. Same kind of thing. And the third one is lifestyle. And this, I think, is where some people that are listening might fall into the trap of selling as a lifestyle business because I think it is a trap. I think it's probably the lowest valuation of the three and your pool of buyers is so much smaller. And that's probably, they probably go hand in hand. I'm not sure it's the lowest value. Okay. I, I would say it was mid value because likelihood is the lifestyle buyer doesn't 
totally understand what they're doing. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it might be they've been left some money mm-hmm. and they're trying to buy an in- yeah. a regular income. So, they, but they could have been maybe redundant or something. Yeah, the chance of them having a decent multiple is going to be low. Yeah, but I, I, they're likely to buy a small agency. And I think they're likely to pay over the odds for the small. They agency. won't buy a three branch agency. I don't no. think they'll buy a one branch agency. Yeah, it's, it's probably a one branch that mm. isn't that big in the area, but might give them a forty fifty gram wage. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's fair to say. I think they pay more than a financial. But if you look at lifestyle, I think it could be somebody like, could be a, a buyer or seller that's bought or sold with the agents, um, with the yeah. agency. And so they're going to go, I like the idea of that. And mm-hmm. I've just released this money. It looks easy. It looks easy. Yeah. I quite fancy showing a few houses. Yeah. yeah. I'm always on right I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it could be somebody like your photographer. Could have a photographer that... Uh, you know, sees what you do, he's properly in your business because he's taking photographs of your house all the time. And he thinks, actually, yeah, I wouldn't mind buying. And have you ever thought about selling? Yeah, it's probably not a money up front deal, is it? Un- unless they've had money left. Then. Yeah, if it is, it's not going to be very much, I don't think. No. Because if they're only buying themselves a 40 grand a year wage, how, come, how much can they actually afford yeah. to pay? Because the most they could pay is probably five years, which is 200,000. It's probably, though, an unsellable business to anyone else. Yeah, it is, yeah. Because they're probably paying a pipeline, maybe a bit more on pipeline because they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, what are they actually buying, which we'll come on to? Because I sold a franchise business many years ago, a contract cleaning business. So I bought it as a lifestyle business. So all I was buying myself was a, an income. At the time, it was turning over about £12,000 a year. It wasn't very much. I know, not very much at all. But I was, it was only a couple of days a week and I could fit it around kids and stuff. So I bought it at, I think, about £12,000, just a really small purchase. But the franchise company took a chunk, like 20%, I think. And then I sold it for over 20000 only 18 months later. And again, they took a chunk. But the people who bought it off me were also buying it as a lifestyle business, and they didn't hang on to it very long. So it was almost like buy, it, buy themselves a wage, mm-hmm. run it for two, three years, increase it, sell it again. So that was a different kind of lifestyle, I think. Yeah, and and just to go back to your point, where to you're probably not getting much money for it. Is my feeling is, and I might be wrong. My feeling is the person buying it isn't very business savvy. No, that's very true. I'm sure it is very true. Because actually, we all know it's not really possible just to buy a hands off lifestyle <laughs> no, business, no. especially in this day agency. No. But then going back to what I said about if they want forty grand a year, how many years? salary would they actually pay up front because i think well they think it's security don't they they think it's an investment if i pay a hundred thousand for it in in Mm -hmm. three years time or more i think if you look at those three buyers though acquirers sorry we're not going to call them buyers acquirers for two of those types of acquirers the name doesn't matter and the third one it does because a lifestyle buyer i don't think wants your name across above the door i don't think they want to be called ashdown jones but the strategic buyer and the financial buyer don't mind. So an example of this is years ago, I worked as a photographer in a little studio in um, Kendall and I was an employee and it was called the Portrait Studio. Now, when I left, the owner decided to sell and the buyer Took a picture of me, by the way. Took a picture of Phil when he was 18 months old, which we've still got. So I met Phil before. Bad photography. It was terrible. (laughs) Absolutely shocking. I wouldn't hire me. When the buyers bought, it was a lifestyle purchase. No idea what they paid for it. And I don't even know how you would value it. They did two things. They moved the studio, which was the death of it. But even worse than that, they changed the name. So what did they actually buy? Yeah. 
it's mad, isn't it? But I don't think a lifestyle buyer wants to buy into a somewhere called Ashdown Jones. I think they want to put their stamp on it. So either they're going to change the name, which would be mad, or they would want to buy a company that was a bit more of a generic name. So Lakeland Properties, for example. But I guess what we want you to think about with these three different acquirers is that lifestyle, I think, is will will pay similar to financial, probably a little bit more. The financial decision is probably going to take a while through the conveyancing part of it. You're going to be pushed on numbers. You're not going to come out with what, what it's worth. But the strategic, you've got the power. So how do you set your business up to not only to build to sell, but build to sell as a strategic mm. purchase because mm-hmm. that's where the money is. Mm. And, and there's two sort of angles, but I think to go and one is the number of branches mm-hmm. and, and the second one is the market, which is used to, to work in. The niche. The niche. Yeah. I think there's also a third one is the service and experience that you provide. If you can trademark and brand that so it feels like just yours, I think that is a third element. Explain. So if we had, we haven't done this and we probably should do, but if we had a system for selling that's called the Ashdown Jones six-step system, that's more appealing to a buyer that we've got, you know, especially a strategic buyer, that we've got a system that they can plug into as well. Yeah. I'm not convinced on that. No. That's fine. Let's move on. (laughs) Okay, so ways of valuing a business. Now, there's obviously multiple ways of valuing a business and we're only going to give you a few to think about. And none of them... You can chuck them all out the window for a strategic buyer, a strategic acquirer. We were talking about this before, weren't we? Who did I say? What was the example, do you remember? Facebook. Or Instagram. Or Instagram. At no point did they look at the revenue, which didn't exist, and go, I'll give you 10 times revenue. No. So that was a complete strategic move. They needed to be, they needed to have Instagram on their portfolio and they just bought Mm. it at whatever price it could possibly be. Same with um, Tony Shea and what's it called? Zappos. When they were bought by Amazon, wasn't it? Yeah. And they were just acquired for some ridiculous price. Amazon do it regularly. As soon as anyone, well, as soon as anyone comes in to a a new, what they deem as a new marketplace, they buy them for ridiculous amount of money that doesn't make sense, which makes sure that they'll never come back Mm. and just flip it into Amazon. Mm. And that's how they, they build. So what are they buying? They're buying infrastructure, market. Market. But they're also buying IP, aren't they? The way that Zappos do that thing and the software and everything they bring along with it. Yeah, but it. they could copy the IP. They could, and that's the question. But the bigger the company, the less likely they are to start them by themselves. Yeah. The more likely they are just to buy in. They're also buying in the talent. And we've talked about this. So if we wanted to expand, which we do, Ashdown Jones, we've just opened a new office in the Dales. It's taken a lot longer than we thought it would do to buy it and set it up. They, they usually get rid of the staff, though. Yeah, but, There's a book called The Four, I think it's called The Four. Yeah. Where four Scott Galloway is it? Is it The Four? Yeah. That's yeah. It. And they talk about how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple. Apple, yeah. Just constantly battle to buy startups all the time. And all they do is bring it in house mm-hmm. constantly and change the brand. It's mad, isn't it? But, but they're giving people a lot of money for startups. And this is why you, you mentioned a guy before that keeps setting up. Yeah, Technology. he sold, sold he put, his he, first eight-figure business at 27 years old, just setting up tech businesses and then yeah. selling them. And he, he probably knows who he's going to sell to before he yeah. sets it up. But he does that. And actually what he does is he builds strategic relationships with them up to two years beforehand yeah. and makes sure they know what he does and how he does it. And it's probably somebody who, who, who either he supplies or they supply him. So then it becomes a strategic sale. Yeah. And it might even be that 
that person that buys from them knows that they can plug it into something and sell to Amazon. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the ways of valuing the business. First of all, we'll start off with EBITDA, which you might have heard of, but you might not know what it means. And there's still some gray area around the D and the A, which Phil and I were just talking about. But do you remember what it stands for, EBITDA? Earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and then that word I didn't know. Amortization. Yeah. There is a difference between depreciation and amortization. Depreciation is the amount, I think I've got this right. The amortization is how many years you depreciate something over and the depreciation is the amount that you depreciate it by. But effectively, it's sort of operating profit. It is, yeah. We were trying to work out what is a simple way of saying it, but it is. So earnings... It's used a lot in hotels. Before interest, so you can take out interest. It's, it's, the, it's taxable profit, but that you haven't taken depreciation and amortization off. Yeah. So in her, in a hotel, in fact, more in a guest house, mm. there's an owner's living expenses adjustment that has to be done because owners live through their businesses. So, you know, it's like I use that toilet roll for the mm. hotel and I use that toilet roll for myself. They don't do that. All the toilet rolls go through against expenses. So there is a, an, an owner's adjustment before the actual profit is yeah. worked out. And it's the same here. So EBITDA, you might have heard it banded around a bit, but that's what it actually means. So how do they use that? So they use it as a multiple and the multiples change in every industry. And it's probably not something that anybody except for maybe financial buyer might look at and only really for a property management company. I don't think a financial buyer is going to be interested in a sales only agency, especially no. not one branch. So they're off the table straight away. I think if they've got like five, 10, 15 branches, and they've all got property management, then it would be a financial purchase and EBITDA will be part of the thing that, thought that they take into account. And it's probably something like four times EBITDA, but that can change massively depending on all the other factors we've talked about. I'm Andrew Sampson. My agency is AKS. Uh, Favourite part of being a Firewave member for me is the overall support. So it's far, far more than just the content. So when I joined, really I joined because I like the blogs, like the letters, but it's the overall community, the mastermind days, all the other stuff that goes into it that I think is probably even more valuable than the content itself. So it's worked out fantastically for me. In terms of the sort of results that we've got, we sent 100 letters out just before Christmas. That led to six properties coming on the market. We find that the letters go down extremely well just because they're so, so different. But that can change massively depending on all the other factors we've talked about. So it probably goes from anything from one times EBITDA all the way up to six or eight times it as the financial buyer could become more of a strategic acquirer. Yes. And one of those factors, we'll go with factors, um, is TAM. What is TAM? So TAM is the total addressable market. And we were just talking about this before. So let's say you had an agency, a one branch agency in the Outer Hebrides where there's maybe only 5,000 people live there. Mm -hmm. So the actual turnover of properties going on the market is not enough. It's probably not even enough for you. But as Phil argued, if you could charge 3% if you're the only agent there. But it's probably still not enough turnover. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a, it's a discussion point, isn't it? Mm. That someone would understand. Well, it's one of the things we looked at when we were deciding where our second branch was going to be. What's the total dress bond market? And our total dress bond market is all the F, G and H council tax bandings. Mm -hmm. So we can add those up and go, well, we've got, we've got about 2,000 in the lakes. So therefore, if the FG and H is in the new Dales branch or potential Dales branch would be at least 2,000, we know we're probably on fairly solid footing. Also, we might look at the properties on the market at the moment. So here we have 380 yeah, we 
And in the Dales at the moment, I think there's 940. Mm. So actually, we've got a bigger total addressable market in the Dales, potentially. Yeah. And if you're in Chelsea, as our lovely Benjamin Scrace is, his total addressable market is going to be in the millions. Mm. So it's about making sure that you've got enough high value sales or whatever sales that you that you specialize in, in your area. So in other words, if you want to be an apartment only selling company, you better be somewhere where there's a lot of apartments. Otherwise, it would make sense, wouldn't it? You, your town's going to be too yeah. low. If you sell burgers, meat burgers, you don't want to be in a vegan festival, do you? <laughs> you don't know. I mean, I would, I find it funny, but yeah, you don't. <laughs> yeah, you've got to know your market. What other factors are there? So the ARR is another multiple that some acquirers might look at, which is the annual recurring revenue, which is the number of properties you've got under management. Yeah, or subscriptions if it's other industries. If it's other industries, other businesses, if you're listening and you're not an estate agent, what on earth are you doing? But if you are another industry, then actually your annual recurring revenue is important. So for example, if you're a software company or a SaaS business, software as a service, and people are paying on a monthly basis, then your annual recurring revenue is going to be used as a multiplier for somebody buying that business because it's not just one-offs. And one of the challenges we have, probably the biggest challenges to a, a successful sale of an agency, a sales agency, is that they're all one-offs. Mm. You can't say, well, I know I've sold this many this year, but I'm going to sell even more next year because next year there could be a blip in the market. And if you don't have the systems and processes set up to make the market and your total adjustable market is low, then it's just a promise. Yeah, and I guess the best way around that, and I'm not even sure if it does get around that, is by having a clear system of how to keep in touch with your previous sales mm -hmm. and hope they come back and maybe give a, a rough guesstimate percentage-wise of the amount of people that will come back and, and try and use that. But The thing is, we can say five years ago we opened and this is what our revenue's done. Now, we've already had our hockey stick mm. and we, we believe now it's leveled out, don't we? If you looked at our, one of our competitors, let's say Hackney and Lee, hello Hackney and Lee if you're listening, and you looked at, they've been open for 27 years or something. I wonder what theirs looks like year by year. Maybe not even revenue, but number of transactions. Mm. Because if you could look at it on a longer term basis, you would have more security knowing that you've still got solid growth and you haven't had big drops. Or if you have had a big drop, it's related to a market condition at that time that you then overcame. One of the things that we haven't got on the board that we probably should have had is, do you have a successful, a proven lead generation system, which we do? So if we were going to sell Ashdown Jones, we'd sell the nom letters and the on the market letters and then a system for being able to replicate that in the future. Because otherwise, how does anybody recreate the leads? Because they can go, well, the Ashdown's gone, the Jones has gone. What are we actually buying? Yeah. Another factor to look at or that an acquirer will look at is your pipeline. So what do we determine as pipeline? Anything that's contracted. Well, I would say under offer. Under offer, yeah. yeah. Under so offer. anything you've done a memo for. Yeah. Yeah, and if I was buying, I would probably look at 70% of that. You could even say, I only want to look at exchanged. Yeah. Because the rest of it's not certain. So out of our pipeline, if you're looking at it now, we've got altogether 340, pounds pipeline. What of that is exchanged? Probably very low. Yeah, maybe 40. Yeah. So actually an acquirer could say, well, I'm only going to pay you a multiple of... Mm. That or they could they could say I'm actually just going to buy the pipeline. I think it's a good guide, isn't it? It's something, isn't it? Yeah, if you've got if you've got three fifty in the pipeline, you know your two hundred's pretty safe. Mm. Well, we talk to agents all the time whose pipeline is maybe twenty, thirty, forty, fifty. Yeah, and that's really all you could sell it for. Yeah, and that's dangerous. It is. Well, it's dangerous from a running cost point of view, yeah. but it's also dangerous from an acquiring point of view. At least when we've got 
you know, three figures, we're into a, th- a three digit pipeline. Mm. We know that that's the least we would expect to get. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't sell for that. But if it was no. a distress sell, then actually 70% of 350. Well, if it's a distress sell, you'd, I'd, I'd just shut the company down and, and wait till it completed. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's yeah. an easier. Yeah. Than having to go through all the... And we know people have done that. So uh, Victoria Green, hmm. she did that. She shut a company down, but then she took the contracted monies. There's people who have switched from franchise to their own yeah. brand, and that, they've done the same thing. There's... Um, who else has done this recently? Hart. Anna. Anna Hart. Yeah, she had a yeah. couple of uh, properties under contract, so she just let those go through. So that isn't really a substance to sell, though, is it? Because Victoria didn't have very many properties and nor did Anna, and therefore... No, and if you've got a 300 gram pipeline... Unless it's distressed, you're not going to sell you. No, 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 you're not. So you're going to just let it, yeah. But then we talk about two different things. We're talking about the selling versus closing. Yeah. That's very different. And then the last thing that we've got on the sort of multiplier factors is earnout. So you probably remember you move selling a few years ago from the gossip that was banded around at the time that may or may not be true. Quick disclaimer there. <laughs> they got 8 million up front and then the 7 million was their earn out over the next five years. And again, gossip and rumor, they didn't get their earn out. Might be completely wrong, but that's what we have heard mm. uh, from reliable sources. So let's say you, I mean, you know. It feels light now, doesn't it? At the time I was like, geez, 8 million for that, but it feels light now. Well, let's look at why they got that then. So they got it because who did buy it? Did Zoo? No. Did Zoo not buy it? Don't know. While we're chatting, maybe you can look that up, Cecile. Who bought you move? And it's E W E. I thought Zoopla bought it. I didn't think it was Zoopla, but we remain in ignorance until she checks out who the buyer was. It was about five years ago, was it? Was it just about the time we set up? It was about a year after we set up. Was it? Okay. So why did they buy it then? Let's just. Imagine it was a strategic buyer, which would be something like Zoopla. They bought it for the number of branches. They had Hockey Stick Grove, didn't they, the two they guys? Did. I think they had 60-odd franchises. Very quickly. Very quickly, yeah. They didn't look at the quality of the franchisees. No. They didn't look at stock. No, and I wonder if it was a strategy to sell. What? Just to rapid growth without looking yeah. at anything else. I'm sure, And yeah. And they thought, yeah, if there's kind of a hope that they knew... Once we get to 60, 50, 60, because they're quite entrepreneurial guys, weren't they? Oh, very, yeah, yeah. very. The, the two guys that set it up were were amazing. They were landlords themselves. Yeah. And I think they'd sold a big portfolio and they had this cash and so they decided to, they decided to start U-Move. And it was very revolutionary at mm. the time. And the branding was very different as well. Whatever you think of it, yeah, it was no. very different, very eye-catching. You know it, don't you? You know it. And when you went into their headquarters and they had the little paddocks and you know, sheep everywhere. It was very different. Yeah. They, they were kind of trying to do something that was fun and innovative. And I think that they did a good job. And actually, if all they got was the 8 million, they probably are pretty happy with that. Yeah, it wasn't long, was it? Like five years. Yeah. What were the buyers buying then? So they were buying the brand. They were buying the lead generation system. They had lots of other systems like... They were buying the, funnels the lean marketing. green marketing machine they were buying the lean green marketing machine and the book as they can't well. have read it but they <laughs> we won't talk about that yeah <laughs> so they were buying a system a plug-in system and it seemed at the time and i've forgotten the name now glenn and i can't remember his name sorry mark can't remember his name they were buying them at first but they were trying to show that they were hands-off i'm not sure they were hands-off but i think that the the way that it's now run is is probably quite slick and it probably doesn't re- 
require a founder entrepreneurial kind of figure at the head. Because mm. you look at Apple now and you think, how did they manage without Steve Jobs? Was it better, worse? Is Steve Wozniak still in the business? Are they doing different things than Steve would have done? If Steve was looking down now and thinking, you know, have they done a good job? Have they done a bad job? Would, would he have done something different? Well, my guess is they've got such a strong leadership team that he probably, he was just sort of the anchor. They're not the anchor, the udder that would steer them. Rudder. Rudder, not udder. <laughs> yeah, he might have been the udder, I'm not sure. But he, he probably is the rudder. I don't know what you were going to talk about then. That would just steer them in the right direction and actually probably didn't make that many. So we'll just look at that then. So they had a strong leadership team. So therefore, when he left, he was just like the wild cat, wasn't it? The wild card. Yes. There was a structure in there, wasn't there? Right. So that's what a buyer's buying then. Structure. Yes. Leadership team. Strong brand that can survive without the owner and yeah. the, the founder. These are all important points, aren't they? Yeah. So actually, the multiplier is only a part of what the buyer, the acquirer is looking for. Yeah, I think the leadership team is probably an underrated asset to have in there. Well, do you remember what our lovely friend, uh, I won't say her name, but was talking about when she's talking about getting the, the offer that she's had for the business, the lady from the yes. mastermind? What did she say that they looked at? Do you remember? No. The org chart. Yeah, okay. She wanted to see, they wanted to see yeah. the org chart. They were very interested in it and they wanted to know whether any of those people were just there was only one person to do that job or whether there were several people that could do that job. Yeah, you want a good ratio of Indians and chiefs, don't you? Yes. Within that. I thought you were hitting um, very close to the PC button there, but obviously not Indians and chief. Can you even say that anymore, actually? It's okay. I'm, 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 I'm happy to, to ride on it. <laughs> I've Did... already been there with the vegans. So... <laughs> now you've got all the Indians and the chiefs uh, yeah. saying you hate. So there's a lot there, isn't there? Let's see if we can um, wrap up. There's one more thing that we had on our list, which was over-reliance on, oh, sorry, owner-reliance. Yeah. And it could be over-reliance on the owner. Yes. Because... Which is what we've just been talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because actually, if me and you were to go, what is somebody actually buying? Yeah. They're buying... An amazing team. company. They're buying a leased, a leased property. An amazing, profitable... There's no assets, is there? Shh. An amazing, <laughs> profitable company yeah any offer that starts with uh, three million we'll consider seriously uh, we haven't really discussed earnout. so the we talked about the you move yeah the less structure you have in place and this actually comes back to you move the less structure you have in place the worse the ratio of upfront to future mm -hmm. pay mm -hmm. is going to be well it says to me they didn't believe that Umove could earn that much over the next five years. That's that's what it tells me. No, and it didn't. Well, so they say. We, we don't think it did. Rumors no. say. And actually, it was probably a good deal for both in the end because the two boys probably knew that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And although, because eight million on the on the outside looks light, I think, for what they had 60-odd mm, At least 60 franchisees. Odd, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it looks light. Mm. But actually, in reality, what was inside, it probably isn't. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> we know many of those franchisees. We do. And a lot of the franchisees were not very happy when they were taken over. And that's the other thing, actually, to consider. If you are bought or you are considering an offer, I'm listening to a podcast at the moment called Built to Sell by John Warrilow. And he's on episode like 360. We have, we've got to catch up somehow. And it's an amazing podcast. And he talks a lot about all the different factors that affect a sale and he's interviewed loads of guests who got out with all cash and all up front. 
And it was one of the factors they were considering. So he challenged somebody the other day that I was listening to, I can't remember his name. And he said, yeah, but you know, do you not feel like you left money on the table? You sold during COVID. You sold for a much lower multiplier than I would have thought. I think it was like a, a twice multiplier instead of like a six times multiplier, which you would expect in that industry. It was a software industry, I think. And the guy went, yeah, but you're missing the point, John. I was able to get out and do something different with the rest mm. of my life. I bought back all my time. I had enough money in the bank to last me probably 10 years. So I could make some really good choices. He said what he did before that was he made a list of his lifestyle expenses exactly as his lifestyle was then and thought, well, what do I have to sell for in order to provide me with that lifestyle over X number of years without doing anything crazy like buying a jet, uh, you know, staying in the same house, going on the same holidays, everything I'm doing now, but all my time back. And he said, that's what I got. So that actually looks quite attractive, doesn't it? Because if you're on, I don't know, let's say you're pulling out a, a 30 grand, 40 grand a year income, which I know a lot of single branch agencies will do, and it's taking you all your time and all your effort, and you know you could go and get a job in a supermarket as a manager for the same price, then actually if somebody came along and offered you, say, six times that, then you've got six years that you've bought back. Six years where you can create another income, you can do something else with the rest of your life. So actually, I can see that that could be appealing. Yeah, there's two sides to it, isn't there? I know it all depends really how much faith you have in your systems and your team and your business. And how much energy you've got though. Yeah, one of my friends in Kendall, his family owned a chemical business and I was speaking to him a few weeks ago and he's on an earn out. I can't remember what he said, three to four years, something like that. But he negotiated, he said not only to get a really good price, because of because of the year now, he's going to stay for three or four years. He negotiated that he doubled his amount of holidays. He <laughs> uh, he said at five o'clock, my phone goes off. I never answer it. So he, <laughs> which he wouldn't have done before, which he's never done. So he's put promises in place. He said he loves mm. it. He turns up at nine o'clock. That's the deal. Mm. They don't speak to him outside of work. It's not any problems. He passes it up the chain. So now he's not bored. He's still doing what he likes. Mm-hmm. He's got. a boatload of money he's got a boatload of money coming because he's got faith in his company and probably what he's done so it comes down to really that what you'd like to do with your mm-hmm. time and and yeah the, the faith you've got in in your team and ability and, and drive as well to continue doing it when it's not necessarily yours the drive is difficult i think so in in amongst his podcast he, he's got a lot of sort of summaries of the his last few hundred podcasts and he says this is the opposite of what i would have thought if i was going to sell my business i would just go and I don't want to be involved in it. I'd rather not have an earn out. I'd rather just take cash and just leave it because I don't want to build somebody else's business. And also if I was going to build somebody else's business, why not just build my own and stay and not sell? That would mm. be my kind of thought. So when I'm ready to go, I'm ready, that's it. But what he says is the general consensus of people who have sold the business is staying around to see it reach fruition is better mentally than just leaving it. Because... The day you leave, that is the last time I get a Sam at ashdownjones.co.uk email. And then how do I feel about what's my purpose in life if I don't even have an email, you know, to ask me to do something or to look at something? So it's, I suppose your question that you need to ask yourself as you listen to this is, well, what am I going to do with that? Let's say I've got a ridiculous price for my business tomorrow. Let's say it was whatever ridiculous is to you. So ridiculous to us, probably 10 million. And we would probably walk away for 10 million. Yeah. So we've got 10 million. That's five each probably got a bit of tax and stuff to pay on it. So maybe we have three each. Probably not even enough for you to retire on, is it? At 30 years old, it's probably just about enough for me. No, and what I thought about over the last sort of year, because I used to say a million I would walk away. 
But it's the effort of what would it take to build another company yeah. that would ever what we are now and, mm. and and can you be bothered with that going mm. through all that pain again mm. and effort and and so i think that's probably the bigger question than what would i sell for i, I, I that's more of a multiplier to me mm. than i can understand that. <laughs> i would just think well what what would i do that i can't do now i mean i've got some ideas my wife certainly has ideas. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. Her Christmas list is ridiculous. It's funny because we I was talking to uh, Chris, my partner, about this when we were on holiday. We just recently come back from holiday in Norway. And he said that, uh, so he's he's 59 He's uh, and he's thinking about retiring by the time he's 65. And he would like to start a business. Quite a young 59, isn't he? It's fair to say. Yeah. And he... Uh, I don't know many 59-year-olds. <laughs> just think about me in five years. <laughs> yeah, he's young. He, I think he's he's... Quite a young, yeah. He won't be ready for retirement in at sixty five, but his his finances and possibly his company might even push him out at sixty five. Who knows? And he wants to do something different for the next chapter of his life. And he said, "I don't want to sell something that doesn't exist. I don't want to sell professional services anymore because he spent his life selling or promoting or consulting, you know, professional services. And we have too. I have never sold a physical product, and mm. except for you know when I worked in a shop when I was a teenager." And there's something to be said for having a physical product. Now, it might not be the smartest thing to do or the most profitable thing to do, but I, I get what he means to, to either create something or buy something that he can sell that's physical. There's a satisfaction in that. Because what, what do we do? We move people from house to house, don't we? Mm. And move money around. It doesn't feel real somehow. So that's your thing to think about, really, is when you're making your reverse bucket list, what have you done that you're proud of and that you really enjoyed? And what would you do in a... I don't know, a parallel universe. We interviewed somebody the day and said to him, well, what would you do if in a parallel universe? What, what would you like to have done? And he said, well, I'd actually like to work with wood. I'd like to be a woodworker or a joiner or a carpenter. And I said to you, what did I say to you? <laughs> I would have been a shepherdess in mm. Scotland in a very remote place where I didn't have to meet anybody. And so what your, your sort of parallel universe is, there's probably a bit of truth in that that you probably want to be able to take into another chapter of your life. You don't want to be lying there on your deathbed at 101 years old going, God, if only I'd been a shepherdess or if only I'd sold shoes or I wish I'd had the chance to do such and such. Still don't think I'm going to be a footballer. No, but you could buy a football team. So you could channel your football and play myself. passion. <laughs> you just get really crap players to be on the other team. Yeah. You buy your... Comp- your- opponents don't you so there's a lot in that and we've wandered off the topic which is not very usual for us no yeah so but there's one point that i think i want to finish on that to really think about if and when the time comes for you to sell or to think about selling a is your business set up to do so and b who's the likely acquirer and and to think about how you start from here to set your business up to be acquired by a strategic purchaser. Because it's a win-win. You can have a better, more profitable business. You don't have to be in as much. And if and when, and it probably is a when, at some point you decide to sell or an acquirer decides they want to buy you, then you're ready. You can even find a logical business, whatever, whoever it may be, a logical business that you think would be a good purchaser for a strategic reason in the next five years and use them. You can ask them if you like, but you could use them as, an, as the guidance throughout this next five years mm. and then go to them in, in five years and say, look, 
this is what I've set up. This is what you need. This is how much I want. I'm going to Las Vegas. <laughs> See you. Putting it all on red. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll be back for a job next week. If you are feeling frustrated with the lack of growth in your agency and you're impatient to reach those ever-moving goalposts, then here's your invitation to find out more about if and how we can help you scale and build the agency of your dreams. All we want you to do is go to fire-wave.co.uk forward slash AJMM and that'll be in the show notes as well where you'll find full information on all of our amazing mastermind programs.